Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. When I stay awake, you'll start to shake, who's guess who's on the telly? Well, you know, man, who we all know, you turn your legs to jelly. The hammer falls, they start screaming, vampires on the silver screen. Got a cool and stick, he's pushing, don't call. Peter Cushing, Peter Cushing. Well, he's so goofy, West Wing suits, he's a man I'd like to be. He's on the telly, late at night, where he's all Paris Burley. He's been in 15 films or more, he's a man that we adore. Got a cool and stick, he's pushing, don't call. Peter Cushing, Peter Cushing. Dr. Satan's. Hey, this is Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and I'm here today with... This is Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And it is time for our monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club, so if everyone will take their seats, we'll call the meeting to order. All right, Richard, tell us, what are we talking about today? Well, we are celebrating the birth month of Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee. They all had birthdays within two days apart, actually. Peter Cushing was born on May 26, 1913, while Vincent Price was born on May 27, 1911, and Christopher Lee, May 27, 1922. Ironically, had both, all three of them had very long careers, but only did a handful of films together, and, uh, and many times they didn't even really have any scenes together, for the most part. The one film in which they really all kind of came together was the... House of the Long Shadows, which uh, was released in 83, which is not one of the films we're talking <laughs> about today. We're, we went with something, uh, a selection of films from essentially the tail end of the 60s to the mid-70s, kind of at the uh, the tail end of the classic horror genre, uh, picking three films in which they all kind of united because they really didn't do any films together uh, prior to 1969. Uh, Vincent Price passed away in... 1993, he was the first of the three to pass away, uh, October 25th of that year at the age of 82. Uh, Peter Cushing survived uh, just about another year, August 11th, 1994. He passed away at the age of 81. And of course, we just recently lost Christopher Lee. He passed away on June 7th, 2015 at the age of 93. Christopher Lee, of course, was 10 years younger than Cushing and Price, but lived to be 10 years older. And uh, his career certainly, I think, lasted easily uh, 20 plus years past when uh, Cushing and Price kind of ended their careers. I mean, Christopher Lee, as you said just before recording, has a movie that hasn't even been released yet. So uh, his career was going right up until the very end. His roles were reduced. He was doing a lot of CGI work, so to speak. Some of his work, like on the the Hobbit films, he was essentially doing some green screen work like that. But uh, 
uh, certainly he was uh, the most prolific of the three, uh, keeping his career going uh, virtually right up to the time he passed. That's right. Yeah, and I think actually I think there's two movies that haven't been released yet, and both of them it was voiceover work. Well, before we get into those movies or even say what they are, I do have some old business from the last meeting to bring up. Uh, first of all, when we were talking about the amazing Colossal Man, uh, at the climax of that movie, we talked about him being lured to a dam in Nevada. And I questioned, I, because I think we misspoke, and I wanted to double-check, it was actually Boulder Dam. We might have said Hoover Dam. Uh, we did. I'm yeah. not sure. So it was Boulder Dam. And uh, I'll be damned if we're going to let any factual inaccuracies come through on this podcast. Uh, we also had the question, uh, we were talking about combinations of, of horror icons in movies, uh, which led to this episode, and we wondered if Lon Chaney Jr. and Christopher Lee were ever in a movie together. We thought not, and we were correct. They have not been in a movie together. Uh, Lon Chaney was never in a movie with Peter Cushing either, although he was in a movie, three movies, with Vincent Price. What were the three? I know he did Haunted Palace. These would be uh, stretching it, perhaps Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And surprise was only the voice at the end. I think you can count that. Uh, And then I don't even believe this was a genre movie, Casanova's Big Night. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that one. So, yeah. 1940s? Uh, 1954. 1954. Okay. So, Lon Chaney would have been essentially done with the horror genre. Vincent Price was just kind of entering. He had done a couple of films by that point that were in the genre, but that's really when he kind of started to hit it. House of Wax was released by 53, so that was kind of at the start of that cycle. Interesting. Yep, and I have one other bit of old business. Uh, Richard and I attended Cinema Agogo in Lawrence a couple weeks ago and saw two classic, in air quotes, classic (laughs) horror movies, She Demons and Voodoo Island. I My expectations were twisted around. I expected Voodoo Island to be halfway decent since Karloff was in it. Uh, that was by far the least favorite of mine, and She Demon, something I'd never really heard about, was really quite enjoyable. Voodoo Island is probably one of Karloff's lesser works. I mean, it's it's uh, it's certainly from a from a cinematic point of view, it's a better film than any of his like last four films he did in Mexico, uh, and those films are certainly the bottom of the barrel. But those films are, I don't know, sometimes they're quirky enough that are marginally probably more entertaining than, than Voodoo Island. Although Voodoo Island's got some good cast. Uh, it had uh, a very young and uncredited Adam West. And the, it's got good credentials. The director, I think, was Reginald Laborg, who yes. has done several other much better horror movies. Yeah, but it's it's a, it's a kind of a boring film, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, not a lot happens. And, and Karloff is just kind of cashing a paycheck to go on a vacation. Um, it's not the worst he did. Um, there's a film called Island Monster, which has nothing to do with horror movies at all, though it is a very horrific film. Uh, it's a basically a cheap Euro mobster flick with uh, Karloff again, cashing a paycheck on a vacation. But it is dubbed in English, and they didn't even bother to get Karloff to come back in and do his lines. They have a Karloff impersonator, which just makes the film absolutely dreadful to to watch, and and there's just that's that's if you're making a list of Karloff films to see, that should be probably at the bottom of it. But Voodoo Island's not too far above it, to be honest. Now, She Demons was a first time viewing for me, and I agree that uh, I had seen the trailer for the very first time, never even heard of it until last year. Uh, the trailer was played when I went to go see the uh, world premiere 
of Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter in Minnesota, uh, Christopher Mim was doing some of his Mimoverse films and then threw in some real trailers. At first, I thought it was a parody, uh, and then I realized it was a real film. And so this was a first time viewing. And I mean, you've got hot jungle women doing uh, erotic jungle dances to the beat of a bongo drum. You've got a hurricane. You've got a volcano. You've got cheesy acting. You've got mad scientists. You've got Nazis in the jungle. You've got women being turned into she-demons. Not much more you could have possibly in that 76-minute running time. And it was, I actually thought it was a lot of fun. I said it's a movie I should probably add to my collection at some point because I would definitely go back and rewatch that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I wanted to follow up, too, on something we talked about. I believe we briefly talked about Mystery Science Theater 3000 and uh, our feelings on that. And I, I hear a lot about that on other podcasts lately because the new Netflix season has opened. And going to Cinema A Go-Go brought up something that I just want to add to my feelings of Mystery Science Theater 3000. So the problem with me is I, I love the concept of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I think it's very clever and being forced to watch the movies. The thing is, I just don't find the comments they make that funny. It's not even so much that they're offending me because I like the movies. It's just, I don't know, I don't like stand-up comedy that much, so I just really don't care for it. But in the environment of Cinema A Go-Go... It is a lot of fun to have people just chiming in, making their comments. I have not laughed so hard in a while when that girl made the one comment at the end of Voodoo Island with Boris Karloff. Don't remember what that comment was, was but it's basically from... From, yeah, from uh, how, the, how the Grinch Stole Christmas is like. It's something about, you know, that came, came with bobbles and bows or something. And she said it at just the right moment. It, it, everyone started laughing out loud, which is the fun of Cinema Go-Go. When you get a good crowd... They laugh at the cheesy moments, and look, these movies, certainly, there's cheesy moments in the best of them, right? And certainly the movies they play. So uh, you've got cheesy moments, and people will laugh out loud at that, and will will laugh at the dialogue. The thing is, we all love these movies, and so uh, her little comment, yeah, was was probably a classic in every way. Since, uh, yeah, it was just, that was funny. I've been going to Cinema Gogo now for a couple of years. I love it. Uh, they always pick, you know, it's a double feature of cheesy films. It's Hosted by Daryl Brogdon, uh, who's the host of the Retro Cocktail Hour, which is a local show out of Lawrence on Kansas Public Radio. If you love the music of the 50s and 60s, it oftentimes pop up in these films, like the music of Martin Denny or Les Baxter. This is a show you need to listen to. You can stream it uh, on the Internet. You don't have to be uh, here in the Met Kansas City metro area. Plus, it's it's on like a seven, eight stations now, coast to coast, and even in New Zealand. So... Do a Google search for it, Retro Cocktail Hour, Daryl Brogdon, and uh, it's a weekly show, two-hour show. Uh, I know a lot of people who love the movies we talk about, love that type of music, and uh, kind of goes hand-in-hand. Hand. So I, I give a shout-out to Daryl. He puts on a fantastic show, both with the Retro Cocktail Hour and Cinema Gogo. All right. Do you have any other old business? I don't. Let's let's uh, uh, dive into the right, land of Price and Cushing and Lee. No more old business. Let's uh, proceed then with uh, new business and the discussion of three movies. Rich, you want to tell us what we're going to be talking about? Yes, we are uh, covering three films, uh, the first of which will be The Oblong Box, released in 1969, starring Vincent Price and, I think he was billed as special guest star, Christopher Lee. So 1969... Uh, just to give you an idea of what other horror movies were released that year, 
we had uh, from Hammer Films, we had Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, one of the more controversial Frankenstein films with Peter Cushing, because uh, Peter Cushing plays a little bit of a of a of a cad in that one. I think that's the one with the controversial rape scene. Yeah. So uh, that Cushing actually did not want to film. He didn't like that. Valley of the Guanji. And we begin to see some more contemporary films begin to sneak in. By this point, we are post-Night of the Living Dead, so we're starting to see a bit more flesh and blood and, and more graphic stuff in the film. So movies like The Mad Doctor of Blood Island and Nightmare in Wax, uh, whatever happened to Aunt Alice. But then you still had kind of some of the end of the 60 cheesy films like Castle of Fu Manchu with Christopher Lee. Uh, in the real world, in 1969, gas was 35 cents. <laughs> of course, probably one of the biggest events, not only of that year, but of all time, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969. Of course, one of the biggest music festivals at all, of all time, Woodstock, was held that year, and the Beatles recorded their final album that year. Kind of crossing over into the genre, 1969 was also the year that the U.S. Air Force closed Pro- Project Blue Book, declaring there are no aliens. Take that for whatever it's worth. Our next film will be 1971's The House that Dripped Blood. Uh, it was released in February of 1971 in the U.K., April of 1971 in the U.S., starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. And... Doctor Who alumni, the legendary John Pertwee. 1971. Uh, gas was now up to 40 cents a gallon. Uh, it was the year of which the microprocessor was invented. The voting age was lowered to the age of 18, and Disney World opened in 1971. Wow. We had a lot of horror movies actually released in 71, uh, and kind of an interesting mix. There were still some old-school films uh, mixed in. We had The Abominable Dr. Fibes, another Vincent Price classic. We had Countess Dracula. Uh, we had Lust for a Vampire, Hands of the Ripper, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Then, of course, we had Let's Scare Jessica to Death. We had Willard, released in 71, the Mephisto Waltz, the uh, Giallo classic Black Belly of the Tarantula, uh, The Devils, which I just recently covered over at Monster Movie Kid and uh, KC Cinephile, uh, The Return of Count Yorga, and uh, two classics in the form of Dracula versus Frankenstein Ugh. and Octoman. Uh, and I still say there was only four tentacles on that. What, um, <laughs> Octoman? Yes, exactly. 1974, our third and final film will be Madhouse, starring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Now, in 1974, gas was now up to 55 cents a gallon. Uh, we had the uh, a lot of the IRA bombings over in uh, Great Britain, including the Tower of London. And uh, over here in the States, President Nixon resigned following the impeachment hearings. Uh, just goes to show you how interesting that uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. <laughs> I'll just leave that as it were. Uh, on the big screen, 1974, we were beginning to see some big changes. Uh, Madhouse, as we'll talk about a little bit, was kind of the end of an era, so to speak. The classic genre, a lot of the legendary actors were beginning to segue out of mainstream horror films as horror films were becoming a bit more graphic because, of course, we had The Exorcist released in 73, and in 74 we had The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We had uh, It's Alive, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, Sugar Hill, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, 
we had on television, we had Killdozer, made-for-TV movies, were really big in 74, uh, throughout the 70s as well. We had uh, The Ghost Galleon, which is the third film in the Blind Dead series. It is also, in my mind, it's the cheapest film, and it's also the only one that's public domain. Uh, it pops up under a variety of different titles. It has a very unconvincing ship, which looks like it's basically sitting in someone's bathtub. But I love the Blind Dead series. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is another semi-classic. We had Phase 4, which is indeed a classic. And uh, perhaps the best of them all, Young Frankenstein from the classic Mel Brooks. Um, so that's what we had in 1974 on the big screen opposite the, uh, the films that we're talking about today. And I'd like to talk about this era just in general. This was a time when I'm starting to have, now I'm having memories of growing up in that time. I don't know if you do as early as 69, uh, but that was the year my brother was born. I distinctly remember that. Uh, I remember knowing about all of these movies from Famous Monsters of Filmland. I mean, I can picture the cover with uh, the woman holding the head on the the plate that's from uh, House of Drip Blood, and I definitely remember the cover with the Basil Gogo's painting of Vincent Price as Dr. Death from Madhouse, but I don't remember seeing the movies. Now, I know... I remember seeing movies at that time, and I would know when movies were out. Like, my father took me to The Exorcist. Um, Planet of the Apes movies, I always knew when they were out and was begging my parents. I saw Asylum at the theater two years before Madhouse came out. So I don't know if it was, if Enid, Oklahoma wasn't on the release circuit for these movies. I don't know if they weren't being widely released. But it was many years later before I actually got to see these movies, and I, I felt like I already knew them so well because probably of famous monsters and those the articles and those covers. I think one thing to consider is that you know cineplexes really weren't the norm at this time. So I mean, you had a lot of one, maybe two screen theaters, and so there were less movies being released. But some of these movies probably weren't necessarily mainstream or the big films, so. They would make the rounds of theaters. They, you probably had to have some bigger cities that had multiple screens. Um, and oftentimes, uh, it took a little while for some of these films to kind of make the rounds. I mean, movies stayed in, in theaters for months on end, whereas you know, some of these films probably didn't make it to every single city. And that, that's a good point, because there are movies I distinctly remember seeing at the drive-in. Frankenstein versus Dracula. These are definitely more Taste the Blood of Dracula. Probably. All of those... And when I see the release dates of those movies, those they're winter months. And I'm thinking, yeah, Oklahoma's a little warmer, but I don't think we went to the drive-in during the winter. So I don't know if they were re-releases maybe in the summer or if it just took them that long uh, to make a round. But I think a lot of times these films took years to, to make the, the total rounds uh, because, they, because it wasn't the big rush, right, to, to rush them onto TV or certainly home video wasn't even around. So I mean, now, I mean, the movie makes it to home video four months after its theatrical release. Back then, a uh, theatrical run could last, uh, for some of these films, realistically, could last, you know, a couple of years. You know, you know. Co- of course, the copies of the prints would continue to get worse and worse, which is where the whole grindhouse genre kicked on in the, you know, the 70s. Uh, the films that had been, uh, the prints were so worn and, and uh, segments had been taken out, what have you. Uh, I didn't really start watching horror films. I can't even remember the first horror film I saw in a theater because I was, I was a little bit sheltered. Uh, I remember being able to watch like the universal classics, but I don't even think I started 
watching those until maybe the mid-70s when I was probably maybe seven or eight because uh, my mom didn't want me watching a lot of these horror films. So I watched them a lot sooner than I think, say, uh, Derek over at Monster Kid Radio, uh, who certainly didn't watch them until I think even later in life. You know, some of these films, like, I mean, actually all of these films, I probably didn't see until the first time until sometime in the 1990s, to be honest with you. House of the Drip Blood, first time I would have seen that. I don't think I even saw that until it came out on DVD. I got the original version of it on DVD. It's since been re-released. But it was probably a first-time viewing for me. It was maybe 15 years ago, maybe. You know, Madhouse, at some point, I know I saw that in the 70s. I had recorded it off television. Uh, the Oblong Box, again, I, I don't think I saw that until maybe 15, 20 years ago. So all of these were, you know, and that's when the video industry was really kicking in. I know a lot of people didn't see a lot of these films until they were available on VHS or home video uh, because they just didn't have, like you said, didn't have it in your local theater, didn't pop up on television. You know, it wasn't until the home video genre, you know, really started giving a lot of these films life again that a lot of people started watching. Because again, 15, 20 years max is when, is when I saw these films for the first time. Yeah, and I'll add to that. Back then, the opening weekend box office was probably not a thing. I mean, movies had legs then. They didn't have to open the first weekend and make all their money before they faded into obscurity. Even like the, the one-screen theaters. I remember our Fox Theater in, in downtown Newton. It wasn't uncommon for the one movie that we'd get to sometimes last two, three, four weeks before another movie came in. So, I mean, you'd have the same movie playing for maybe a month with some of these bigger films, which is, I think led to, like, if you liked it, you would see it multiple times. I was just going to ask if that meant you saw them. I, I, I remember seeing Spies Like Us, I think, probably every week that it was out, So, which is probably three times more than I should have seen that movie. But, um, yeah, you, you just if you wanted to go to the movies and you lived in a small town, that was it. One screen, that was the choice. So uh, there was we didn't have midnight movies or anything. I'd have to travel to Wichita to see more screens and, and uh, the midnight movies and such, So, uh, which wasn't, I had to plan ahead for that. Yeah, I can remember uh, two movies distinctly seeing several times that were at the Chief Theater in Enid, Oklahoma, standing in line outside to be let in, Smokey and the Bandit and Jaws. Those uh, can't, don't know I, how many times I saw those. I stood in line to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and uh, I was standing, I actually was standing in line to see Rocky Four and... Uh, uh, common sense kicked in and said I really should not be standing in line in the cold to see Rocky for. So I think it was the cold. I don't know. I remember we both, we all decided that we would rather uh, go grab a bite to eat at Chi-Chi's in Wichita, have some Mexican food, rather than see Rocky for. Okay, well, uh, should we dig into the first one? I think we should. All right, let's play the trailer, and we'll be back right after that. died. Where is he going to be buried? As soon as you found another body. Do you realize the penalty for body snatching is hanging? You're a forger and an embezzler, and now you're going to become a body snatcher.
assist you in your experiments. Waking up in that horrible oblong box, no air to breathe, every shovelful raining down on the lid. God, Trench, do you know what that means? It means that my brother was buried alive. Our first movie is The Oblong Box, released in 1969, starring Vincent Price and Christopher Lee. Julian and his brother Edward run a lucrative plantation in Africa. On a recent visit, Edward is captured by natives and becomes the victim of a voodoo ritual. Sometime later, back in the United States in 1865, Julian keeps Edward chained in his bedroom. Julian's associate, Trench, is secretly working with a witch doctor to cure Edward. They fake his death, but when Julian wants a substitute body for the public to view, and the lackeys of a grave robbing Dr. Newhart accidentally freeze a buried alive Edward, he goes on a throat-slashing murder spree. Julian remains clueless until Edward arrives to drag off his brother's new wife, Elizabeth. There's a final twist that adds one more case of mistaken identity to a story that's driven by several others. All right, and thank you for that synopsis, Rich. So that seems kind of like a complicated uh, synopsis, and we tried to be as brief as possible, but it's sort of a complicated movie. There's a lot going on and i really enjoyed the setup and the intricacies uh, of what was going on and you aren't sure for a while what exactly you know is going to be going on in fact i cut i liked this build up and that mystery more really than what happened after it got where it was going i agree i think the build up was you know i think the the opening voodoo sequence was done incredibly well the close-up shots of the voodoo witch doctor or whatever incredibly effective i think um vincent price you know screaming in horror and we never really see exactly what's going on i think that was done incredibly well to to kick off the movie you know as as the plot as you said it's very intricate it's very i'd say almost convoluted at times it's almost too complicated it tends to kind of get bogged down a little bit as the movie progresses but I enjoyed it though. I'm just, I'll stay all right up and yeah. say that I enjoyed it better than I did the last time I saw it, which has been quite a few years ago. Let's, that's okay. Even the worst Vincent Price film is enjoyable because he's just got a certain way of presenting himself. I think the same way about Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing elevates a movie. Definitely. Christopher Lee doesn't always do that because sometimes Christopher Lee. His performance is is incredible. Sometimes I feel like he was he's just sometimes he does some of these roles very low key, and he doesn't elevate movies, in my opinion, anyway, as much as Vincent Price or Peter Cushing have, because they both have a way of just reading their lines that draws you in. Christopher Lee can sometimes be a little dry, depending on the material and depending on his interest level, because Christopher Lee did basically I think everything that came his way. For the most part, he he did a lot of films in his career, uh, much more than Price and Cushing did. And, you know, some of them are just very run-of-the-mill. Some are absolutely amazing. You know, you can't compare Christopher Lee's performance in uh, Rasputin, for example, to his performance in this film. In this film, he was very low-key. And we should probably say, I don't think the synopsis did, that uh, 
Christopher Lee plays Dr. Newhart. He's the um, surgeon who's behind the grave robbing sub-industry that's going on in town, I guess. Now, and Vincent Price is, he's got a little, his role is interesting. He goes sort of a fine line between being a, a good guy and a bad guy. I'd say he's mostly a good guy, but then every once in a while he does something that's pretty far out there. Would you I think so. I mean, because, you know, um, you know, because certainly there's the twist towards the end, uh, the final act of the film that kind of changes things a little sure. bit. Sure. I don't know. We'll talk. I guess it's how how many decades old is this film? Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll keep that twist. You know, I think uh, if you're a first time viewer, I think it's important that you don't necessarily know what that twist is to enjoy the film. So we won't mention what the twist is, but um, that certainly cements whether you think he's a good guy or a bad guy. True. Um, he's not an incredibly bad guy. He's not like evil. Maybe just a a, a product of of a unfortunate situation and then he just kind of got wrapped up in the in the in the moment and uh but he, yeah you sympathize with him to a point but then you're like yeah he kind of did some things that really weren't weren't that good and when he uh the point where his brother has died and he wants the townspeople to see a different body uh, you know that's ethical he wants his associate to get him another body i don't think he intends for them to murder somebody to get that body which is what they do and then when he finds out he's very shocked that that's what they did yeah it's because again he kind of like he's okay with doing some things to a point but then yeah he's not going to cross that line and go full-fledged arch villain of the film it's uh he rides that fence uh and, and and the way that vincent price could do in a lot of his films i mean even when he's being bad you're kind of like i still like him because it's Vincent Price. He just has a certain charm, you know, when he's killing someone or whatever. It's kind of like, yeah, but he kind of does it in a nice way, doesn't he? You know, he's murdering someone, but gosh, you know, he did it so well. <laughs> you mentioned the photography and the close-ups and all of that. That uh, is used for a, a good deal of the movie because we do not see Edward at all. In fact, when we see him, he's under a hood. But in those early scenes, it's a lot of point of view. From his point of view, it's a lot of shots of his feet or his lower body. We don't see his face for a good long time. And the point about the, the close-ups and the camera work, I think that's kind of distinctive of all three of the movies that we're going to talk about. And that is in itself distinctive of this late 60s, early 70s era. To me, the, they have a, a definite visual style that you can identify as being from that the decade or those years. And here's what I think that is. It seems like there's a lot more exterior shots. And I don't know if that's because they, the camera equipment was easier. It, it seems like a lot of it is more handheld. But, you know, the camera moves a lot more. There are a lot more close-ups, a lot more zoom-ins. Um, I think the cameras were a little bit easier to get out. I mean, you look at some of those older films, right? They did a lot of, of uh, you know, the, the, the mid to lower budget films did a lot of studio shots because that was the cheaper way of doing it. The big budget films are the ones that would, you know, haul out the big cameras. And as technology has made the cameras more or smaller and more accessible to get out and to do location shots, yeah, you get a lot more location shots in this particular time frame, which to me, you know, a film with a lot of location shots, it enhances the film as opposed to if they would have done a lot of these scenes in a studio, it would have been less convincing. Right. And, so, and even the interiors seem to be locations rather than sets that were built. Uh, it's just everything's 
the the screen is filled with more stuff. Uh, it's not necessarily that it's more claustrophobic. It is in some cases, but uh, it just the, the, they seem the room seems smaller. There's there's more stuff around it. Just it, it's more authentic. It seems more real to me than if they had built sets. I agree. I agree. Uh, I think uh, I think you know. I think all three of these films and and certainly. The oblong box is is really the uh, the period piece, film, and that's right? that's where I do sort of have a problem with this style of photography and it being a period piece. That I sometimes have a hard time with those two things meshing because everything you're looking at seems period, but yet they're using styles that are modern, and it just it, it's always an odd combination for well, me. A lot of these, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, films, and of course, Vincent Price starring in a lot of them. Yeah. These period uh, piece films from the sixties and seventies that yeah, you're right. I mean, they have a certain modern feel to them. Um, almost as if they're like in another, another world. And this is also a, a Poe movie. Compare it to the early Poe movies, most of which Vincent Price were in house of Usher pit in the pendulum, very different style. Uh, in the way that they were filmed, I, I think those earlier ones. I think the, must have been sets and yeah. stationary cameras. I think it's it's safe to say the one thing it does have in common is that even though it is uh, based on a story by Edgar Allan Poe, it really has no semblance of of anything recognition to the original piece of work. Um, and certainly, some of the films are a little bit like The Raven. Of course, they can capture certain elements from it. The Oblong Box really doesn't have anything to do with with the short story. Uh, yeah, I did a little research on that just to try to figure out, and about the only theme that seems to be common in the two is that in the original story they substituted a body for a real dead person. That's about it. That's yeah. about it. But the being buried alive theme, I mean, that's just Poe in general. That is Poe in general. Yeah, that that is a theme that kind of pops up uh, periodically in, in uh, a lot of his different works, so... And while we're talking about Poe, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Uh, so this, to me, is like the second phase of Poe movie. Uh, Roger Corman's not involved any longer. Of course, we're getting further and further from the core Poe stories, like the earlier ones did. But I guess, I mean, to me, it's a, a decline. And, and I don't know really where the difference, where you would split the difference. But I, I, it is, I guess, maybe when Carmen, Corman departed. And they started. They continued making Poe movies. That's probably where well, they the used kind of. I think some of the the, the more well known Poe stories. So you're obviously you're starting to dive down into some of the more lesser known works, and uh, which kind of goes hand in hand too. The, this is the period of time, as we said, genres changing, and so Poe Poe's always been in fashion. But when it comes to uh, adapting his stories for a film. Um, by the 70s, we're doing less period piece films, and we're doing more contemporary horror, like The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have Eyes. Putting Poe in that modern-day setting, you wouldn't see that until maybe a few years later, like the 80s or 90s, when they started doing some loose adaptations of Poe again, and basically even putting a further twist on it, putting it in maybe a more modern-day setting, and not being a period piece. So this was kind of the end of of Poe films being adapted in a true period piece uh, setting, uh, even though, again, there's very little uh, from the original work. Uh, this was kind of the end of the, of the, uh, the Poe genre, so to speak. And I can't even think right offhand, 
you know, I'm sure there maybe was one or two, but I, I don't know if there's any other Poe films that came after this. Well, Vincent Price did Evening of Edgar Allan Poe, which is basically a filming of a stage. Yeah, I wouldn't count uh, that performance. as a film. But uh, you know what I think this was? Maybe uh, was Murders of the Rue Morgue. I think there was a, maybe an early 70s version. Not with Vincent Price. Not with Vincent Price, though. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, I mean, you're, we're, we're nearing the end, definitely. We're, we're coming to the end of that of that and genre. I did make note of a quote near the end of the movie, which did sound like Poe. And, that, you know, I think as long as they drop a couple things in there that, that sound like Poe, that's kind of cool. But the quote was, Buried, yes, waking up in that horrible oblong box, no air to breathe, trapped and no escape, earth raining down on the lid, every shovelful burying you more deeply. That's very... Sounds like Poe to me. That is, that's definitely that very, very much like Poe. Um, we had a great cast in this movie. You know, Vincent Price heads up the cast as, as Julia Markham, while Alistair Williamson uh, plays his brother, Sir Edward. Um, interestingly enough, though, he only plays the body. The The voice uh, is not uh, is not Alistair Williamson. That was someone else who remains uncredited. And uh, we only see Sir Edward's face towards the end of the film. Which, I'm going to interject, that was sort of a disappointment. I was I, expecting, I expecting something more hideous. Well, they made a reference about something about the, the face being turned inside out or something, which did not look like the end result. No. I, that's, that's a big letdown in this film. Alistair Williamson was in some other films around this time period, yet uh, he was in Evil of Frankenstein, The Gorgon, uh, Curse of the Werewolf. Um, so that he's, uh, and generally I think he was an older actor who always, I think kind of played more of a, I think they said, I was reading a description. He played a lot of like police detective roles and such. Christopher Lee, as we said earlier, was special guest star billed as Dr. Newhart. I'm, I'm trying to think Christopher Lee and, uh, Vincent Price didn't share any scenes together, did they? Uh, I'm trying to remember one of the movies. I think they do. I think they're at the end. There's one Is scene. scene at the end. Yeah, um, I know. Not much, though. I mean, they're, they're screen No, screens. no, no. I think it was one very, scene. Very I'll uh, check my notes here while you're going on. And we, and we may have to, to correct yeah. that in next next month's show. But I don't, yeah. They, again, this, which is kind of indicative of a lot of their films together. Uh, and they didn't do many. Uh, and again, throwing in Peter Cushing for the mix. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, Cushing and, and Lee shared a lot of screen time together. Cushing and Price shared very little, and Price and Lee uh, shared very, very little time together. And I don't get the whole guest star thing. That just seems odd to me. For a one-time movie uh, to have a guest star, it, it indicates to me some recurrence. Uh, and I think I think it was it was trying to add to his presence because, of course, this was the Dracula Hammer films were were he was huge at that point, and so I think kind of. Having him in a non-Hammer Dracula film, they were just trying to add a little flash, I think. A little bit of marketing. And, yeah, and, and I wonder if been, it's... May have been Christopher Lee saying that, you know, I would only do the film <laughs> if I have a special guest star. Yeah, I, that may be a thing of the times, too. I mean, you see that in a lot of movies. You do, yeah. And, a, yeah, maybe some contract contractual thing, uh, since he didn't have top billing or something, to pull him. Pull him in, yeah. yeah give him that extra boost. Um, you had Rupert Davies playing uh, Kemp, who was uh, Julian's friend. He was in films like Dracula Has Risen from the Grave and The Crimson Cult. Now, Sally, the maid, was played by Sally Geeson. She looked familiar, but she doesn't have a lot of screen credit. So I, 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 she was in 
Cry of the Banshee in 1970, and maybe that's where I'm recognizing her from. She has a certain look, but she she did some television work and some other films, I believe, but nothing really big, so I don't know why she looked familiar. Peter Arne played uh, the uh, Crooked Family Lawyer Trench. Um, Hillary Heath, who was billed as Hillary uh, Dwyer, played uh, Elizabeth, the fiancé of Julian. And uh, I swear, in probably 90% of these films, there's always a fiancé named Elizabeth. <laughs> it's such a pure name. She had starred uh, with Price in two other films in the same time period, Witchfinder General the year before in 68, and Cried the Banshee the year following in 1970. Uh, Harry Baird played the uh, the witch doctor Nigolo, who uh, I think he was a, he was a fun character, and he was, definitely had kind of a a unique uh, look to him. He did, unfortunately, a lot of stereotypical uh, native roles and such. The biggest of which, though, he was uh, uh, a rather prominent role in 1960's Tarzan the Magnificent opposite Gordon Scott, which is one of the all-time best Tarzan films. Hmm. Uh, I am a big Tarzan nut. It's been years since I've watched them all, but that's... uh, one of the best universally recognized is it ranks right up there with uh, Tarzan the Ape Man with Johnny Weissmuller. Uh, it's one of the all-time best, and uh, like Tarzan and His Mate is also uh, another Weissmuller film. It's ranked in the top five Tarzan films of all time. Very well made. Hmm. Hillary Heath I want to throw in there. Of course, we're celebrating the, the birthdays of the big three today, uh, and we do birthdays at the end of the show. But the day we're recording this, May 6th, is actually Hillary Heath's birthday and she is still living i believe i was going to ask if she was still i think she was she's still the among the living one person we're going to talk about today that is still with still us, with us. Yes. everyone else is gone unfortunately the screenplay yes. for this film was uh, by lawrence huntington had some work from christopher wicking and michael reeves which we'll talk about michael reeves in a second um the film was directed by gordon hessler who had done Cry the Banshee and Scream and Scream Again around the same time period. Now, Michael Reeves was originally chosen uh, to direct the film. Michael Reeves had done some films such as Castle of the Living Dead, which I believe stars Christopher Lee, She-Beast, The Sorcerers, which was one of Boris Karloff's last films, and Witchfinder General the year before, of course, with Vincent Price. Now, I don't know exactly uh, the, uh, the reason as to why he wasn't why he didn't actually finish directing the film. And I'm going to suggest that perhaps it was because of some drug related issues because Michael Reeves, um, uh, passed away. Uh, the film itself was completed two months before he passed away of a drug overdose, uh, at the age of 25. Hmm. So a very young man who have some, some classic films to his credit. I believe he was, uh, I think I was looking at his credits. He may have been, as young as maybe 15 when he did his first short film, and then to pass away from a drug overdose at the age of 25. I think he had a he could have had an interesting horror film career ahead of him had he not passed away. So that's very well could be the reason why they passed on him as uh, as director. But he did do some work with the, uh, with the screenplay. Now, Lawrence Huntington, who wrote the screenplay, he died just days into the shooting of the film, uh, which is why you have Christopher Wicking and Michael Reeves involved in the uh, uh, in some of the screenplay work. They did some of the the initial revisions, and as I, I read that those were pretty significant. They made some substantial changes yes. to the script. Apparently, some theme, one of the African themes, uh, or I read it, they called 
imperial exploitation of native peoples in Africa was sensitive at this time, and the movie was banned in Texas. I saw that as well, which, you know, not, I guess, surprising that time period you had. So we were coming off the 60s and the civil rights, and and the South was always a little behind the curve on some of that and, and adapting and uh, start of the 1970s, end of the 1960s, still a very volatile time in the South. And uh, um, certainly, I'm sure some of these, you know, whether or not that was banned in the entire state of Texas or maybe a particular theater chain, it didn't say, but uh, not surprising that they would they would probably, you know, ban something like that if it was deemed too controversial. And Texas always does its own thing anyway. So. Yeah, they're always their own little world down there, so... Uh, I really I enjoyed the film. I think it was well made. I think, uh, despite the fact that it had a bit of a convoluted storyline, at times, it, you know, I had to kind of just kind of rethink what I'm. You know, it just seemed like there was always kind of changing direction one way or another, and then ultimately the big twist kind of towards the end. I'll admit I didn't see coming. I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I had forgot about the twist. The twist is ultimately. Uh, as, as you said, a, a bit let down when we have the big reveal of, of um, you know, Sir Edward and his appearance. It was like, you know, you take the mask off and it's kind of like uh, you're watching a very low-rent version of Phantom of the Opera and they just didn't have enough money for, for makeup. I always look at, like, Lon Chaney's makeup is, is iconic. And in some other versions of Phantom of the Opera, Herbert Lom's version, I think, in the 60s, for example, he just has some scars on his face. And in my mind, perhaps maybe that is more realistic than Cheney's version. It's a lot less stunning. It's a lot less impactful than what you, when you tear off that face in the 1925 version, you see Cheney's face. It's horrific. You know, the Herbert Long version, for example, and other versions of Phantom of the Opera of the Years, it's always a bit of a letdown. As a comparison, I immediately came up of when the mask was pulled off. I was like, oh, Okay. Yeah, and it's not that it's bad makeup. It's just there's not much to it. I expected something, you know, much more gruesome. Yeah, definitely underwhelming. There's a couple other things I noticed about the movie. Uh, whenever uh, Vincent Price's character is talking to Elizabeth, and when it starts out, they're just—I don't even know if they're engaged—but her father is concerned about his dealings and wants to take her off to Italy. But every time he has a conversation with her, they're walking along the countryside. And I thought that I, this was interesting because there are several conversations. And when I saw them walking outside, it was like, oh, it's time for them to talk about their relationship. <laughs> and that was pretty much a contrast to the tone or the darkness of, of the rest of the movie. Also, the uh, you can't really call it gore, but there are a lot of throat slashings in this movie. And... This is of the style where the fake knife they're using is squirting blood out the end of it as it drags it across their throat. It never once did I find it you know, realistic at all, but uh, they do an awful lot of it. I didn't notice it. I did read that there's a noticeable goof that the knife is squirting out blood before it actually touches the throat, but I, I didn't notice that. I just... Probably one of these things was maybe it was more effective back in the day on the big screen, right? Because you see it in flashing, and uh, of course now we're in the comfort of our own homes and we're watching it on a big screen where a lot of these little intricate details, which weren't as noticeable before, are more noticeable now, especially in the days of high definition. And some of these, the qualities of these films are, are in many cases better than what they would have been shown in the theater at the time. And so some of these 
quote-unquote flaws back in the day are now much more visible than they, than they once were. The downside of living in a high-definition world. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take it, though. So remember this. We're talking about this level of gore, which is you know blood squirting out of a fake knife. Remember that when we talk about Madhouse, because I'll, I'll come back to compare something to that. My only other point was, uh, oh, and well, this is sort of the same thing. So there is a point where a uh, one of the people is being killed by, I, I believe this is when they're robbing the grave, and the, they're getting rid of the guy working at the cemetery so they can get the body, and they kill him with a shovel. And he's laying on the ground. And it's interesting that they show, I mean, them swinging the shovel, they show it coming down, would be hitting his head, except it so clearly lands beside his head. But just the fact that they showed that action and... You know, that you could put two and two together, I thought was fairly graphic uh, for them yeah, to have done. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And if you're going to bring up Doctor Who every episode, allow me to bring up Dark Shadows. All right. There was a scene directly out of Dark Shadows when, after they've uh, opened the grave and uh, the shot is from the side of the coffin, and you see the person on the other side of the coffin leaning in. And then the hand reaches up and grabs him by the neck. And I guess this was Edward, right? When they yes. he had been buried alive and then they released him. So his hand reaches up and grabs uh, by the throat. That's directly out of Dark Shadows. So I like to think, you know, its influence was being felt then, even though it was uh, three years, I guess, after that premiered. But already they were robbing from it and taking great scenes from it. I will give you that. I will give you that. You know, you are the the Dark Shadows aficionado here at the Classic Wars Club. I am the Doctor Who aficionado. And and over time, uh, we will convert each other. Uh, We've already committed to having a Dark Shadows episode at some point down the line. And uh, Doctor Who won't fit into this genre. Although, I mean, honestly, there are some early to mid-70s area where there were some good horror stories that that Doctor Who was doing. Uh, Some very... Definitely influence in some uh, some you know horror genre, and certainly even in modern Who, there's been some pretty horrific. I, I think one of the scariest episodes of Doctor Who you'll ever find is the episode Blink from about ten years ago now, uh, which is one of the all time best Doctor Who. It was the the first appearance of the Weeping Angels, and I don't think you get anything creepier than the Weeping Angels. So uh, you continue with your Dark Shadows references. I'll continue with uh, with Doctor Who. Uh, I will say this. Now, you said you had some Doctor Who trivia before, or, or some references. Was there any for the Oblong Box? No, I guess not. You, you probably would have caught it. So, no, not in this one, but they're coming. They're coming, yeah. definitely with the very next film. Yes. Are we Are we, uh, Are we? we good on the Oblong Box? I think box? we are. I, I liked it. I, this must have been my first time. I don't remember seeing it. And I liked the... the the intricacies of the plot, even though it it ultimately kind of let down once that, you know, was all done in the setup. Uh, so, yeah, I liked it. Uh, very easily available. In fact, all three films are today. Uh, it was originally part of the MGM Midnight Movies double feature DVD collection paired up alongside Scream and Scream Again, which is a film in which uh, Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee all star in. And is nowhere near as exciting as it should be. Um, so of those two, uh, it's a good film to have in your collection, but the Oblong Box is definitely the better of the two. 
and more importantly, it's available on Blu-ray now, which I have not seen the Blu-ray edition, but I hear that it's excellent and so uh, also relatively cheap. So very easy to find and to add to your own personal collection if you so desire. Well, let's uh, move on to the second movie. Let's play the trailer and uh, we'll come back and talk about The House That Dripped Blood. This house is full of sounds. The loudest is your heart pounding in the night. The softest is the sound of terror. In this house, terror waits for you in every room. and victims. You'll find them all in The House That Dripped Blood. Blood, 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 blood. Our second film is The House That Dripped Blood, released in 1971, starring Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Pertwee. In the wraparound of this anthology from Amicus Productions, Inspector Holloway investigates the disappearance of actor Paul Henderson. At the local police station, he learns about previous events at the house Henderson was renting. Then, the real estate agent, A.J. Stoker, reveals the secret of the house after Holloway goes looking in the basement. All right, thanks again, Richard, for that uh, synopsis. Stoker was the name of the real estate agent. I think that's kind of, uh, I'm sure that's an in-joke uh, <laughs> on Bram Stoker, especially with the last uh, story that we've got in this movie, which is an anthology. It is from Amicus. Released in 1971 kind of the next step in the ever-changing world of horror films. Of course, doing what Amicus does best is being a, a horror anthology film. Uh, I don't think... Uh, in the horror anthology genre, which I think you can call it a genre because there's been countless, countless yeah. anthologies over the years, Amicus, in my opinion, always tends to, to rank rather high on the list. As with any good anthology, you're going to have one story or two, maybe if you're lucky, that are going to stand out above the rest and you're always going to have some of the weaker entries of course you got a great cast in this one with uh christopher lee and peter cushing and, and john pertwee doing essentially separate roles because they're they're in separate stories so um and john pertwee at this point in time not on the level of a christopher lee or peter cushing Pertwee had established himself and doing bit roles and such but he had become a household name the previous year by taking on the role of the Doctor in Doctor Who. And a period of time, a big change. And I'm saying all this to kind of set this up before we dive into the film, so you know that where John Pertwee was in the, the, the eyes of the UK viewers, because Doctor Who was still hugely popular, uh, it had made the transition uh, a year earlier in 1970 from black and white to color, and uh, John Pertwee had assumed the role as the third Doctor. Uh, the shows were now set primarily on Earth through uh, plot you know, development. He had had his ability to time travel taken away from him. He joins the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. He becomes their scientific advisor. And a lot of the stories in the early 70s Doctor Who uh, period of time, basically aliens invading Earth. There's a lot of uh, quartermass uh, comparisons in this period of time of Doctor Who, because he's he's basically, again, he's fighting alongside the military, battling the various aliens that keep coming to Earth. 
starts doing a little bit of time travel again. When he does this film, he had completed, uh, I believe he had completed the first season of Doctor Who by this point. And uh, that particular season had some very long stories. They were seven-part stories. Again, all alien invasions. And he was probably the most active Doctor Who up to that point. He was he was the master of Venusian Aikido and uh, also very dashing. Uh, he traveled around in a uh, yellow roadster by the name of Bessie, which we will talk about again in just a second. Uh, that was his way to get around. And, of course, he had the young companions. And even, you know, Ingrid Pitt appeared in one of the Doctor Who stories. Uh, and of course, she's in this film as well. So uh, Pertwee was, was probably at the height of his popularity in the U.K. when the time this film came out. And I would dare say this is probably the biggest theatrical film that he made. And I think this is his movie. I, his segment is my favorite, and he's terrific in it. He had a, he had a, and he very much a flair and a flash uh, about him. His doctor was often referred to as the dandy. Much of what you see in this movie is is kind of visually what you would see if you were watching Doctor Who around this time period. Hmm. Well, should we break it down? You want to take each segment and talk about it, and that way we can associate the stars. That I are think in so. That one and yeah, we had the we had the workaround, uh, Scotland Yard investigator uh, looking into mysterious uh, cases at an unoccupied house, and uh, of course we're basically getting these these stories that had unfolded at the house. Right, and so the last story will involve the person that they're looking for, which is why they're doing the investigation, and the three before that will be people that formerly occupied that house. Yes, the, the missing uh, Paul Henderson, played by uh, uh, John Pertwee. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, this is a darn movie, but it's funny to me that its reputation is so well known uh, that uh, the first couple of stories, the police relate, you know, yeah, this is what happened. And then the real estate agent knows what's happened. It seems like they should have just leveled that house with all the horrible things that happened. It reaches a uh, point, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. but, you know, it's, uh, as with so many of these movies, it's like, uh, I, people just never watch movies in the movies, right? Otherwise probably half the stuff wouldn't happen. Yeah. It's written by Robert Block. We got to mention that right yep. off the bat. And um, there is a, uh, feature on the DVD for The House of Drip Blood with Max Rosenberg, who's one half of the Amicus Productions team, who says, well, first of all, he had the name of the movie in mind, The House of Drip Blood. Absolutely no plot or story to go with it, but he supposedly spent a year going through Robert Block's short stories, picking ones that would be in this uh, movie. Well, uh, Robert Block, of course, at this time... um well-known for writing the uh, the, the uh, Psycho novel, of which the uh, Alfred Hitchcock film was based. Uh, he did a lot of television work, uh, writing episodes of Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Night Gallery, doing other film work as well around the same time period, Straight Jacket, uh, Nightwalker, uh, Asylum, so uh, definitely uh, entrenched in the horror genre. Uh, Russ Jones does get some incred- an uncredited Got to reference him because he did some work on the the story Waxworks, which is where we're not entirely sure. There's there's uh, a reference on Wikipedia as to where some of these stories originated. We know that they originated from short stories that uh, Robert Block uh, had written, at least several of them. And there's some references as to dates and uh, where the uh, you know some some of the stories were originally published. And you know what? I think they could all be his. He was born in 1917. Well, then that would be that would be uh, 
Yeah. Okay, then that would work. So Waxworks, we know, uh, appears to have been written by Russ Jones. It was part of uh, Weird Tales uh, magazine in January 39. Uh, the other three, apparently, then were written by Robert Block. Uh, the Cloak, which is the final fourth story, was released uh, in Unknown magazine in May of 39. The The first uh, story, Method for Murder, was from a, and I'd never heard of this one, called Fury, uh, released in 1962. And then the third story, Sweets to the Sweet, was from uh, Weird Tales, again, from March 1947. So none of, none of them are original works per se. They were all adapted from short stories for this particular film, which was directed by Peter Duffel, who really didn't do anything uh, cinematically. That, that uh, This is probably the peak of his career. I think he did a couple of other movies that I had never heard of. Well, Max yeah. Rosenberg said in the uh, bonus feature that he would go on to make The Far Pavilions, in 1984, which is a British miniseries, oh, okay. which to hear Max Rosenberg talk was the pinnacle of any director. And I did not career, see that. So. I did not see that. So yeah. that uh, that is something I have to go back and watch. He did do a lot of British television work, though. So Peter Duffel, even though um, you know may not have had uh, a lot of movies in the in the theater, uh, was very very well known on British television. So very well accomplished. Uh, and of course, yeah, again, this is Amicus Productions, so you got that Amicus label to it. Uh, is always going to elevate any type of film around this time period when you're talking about a horror anthology. Yep. So the first story is called Method for Murder. It runs about 20, well, all of them are about 20 minutes. Uh, I think this might be the longest one. So the first occupants of the house are a horror writer, Charles Hillier, played by Denham Elliott, and his wife, Alice, Joanna Dunham. And he's writing his new novel, and while he's doing that, late at night on dark, stormy nights, the character of this novel seems to come to life and, well, basically torment him. It certainly torments him mentally. One of the creepiest grins this side of, uh, what, uh, Gwynplaine from uh, The Man Who Laughs? <laughs> that, I, you know, obviously Gwynplaine, that look, uh, you know, from The Man Who Laughs is better, but it, it's, for some reason, it's the grin. That was the first thing that came to my head. Uh, a, a Joker-esque appearance, certainly, whenever he would pop up and lightning would flash or light would flash on him. You know, I feel like in most of the anthology stories from Amicus and in really any good anthology story has, you know, the whoever's done something wrong gets what's coming to him. I thought the problem with this was it's not really clear... I, I didn't know where it was going because from up front, there's no one that has done something bad. There's no one that's evil, you know, that's going to get revenge cast upon them. So that is ultimately what happens. But to me, it it sort of wasn't earned. And it, I don't know, this one didn't, it was very effective mood wise, but story wise, I thought it was a little bit lacking. And, well, well made, to, but it lacked the punch. Yeah, and I wanted to see what you thought, because that could just be me. I mean, there's clues, and I guess, well, let's talk spoilers here. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so his wife, his wife is, you know, out late at night. I mean, she comes in one night really late, and I was wondering why he doesn't even, you know, question where she's been or anything. I think the next day he asked her how the theater was. So, you know, he's not questioning what she's doing. I think if he had perhaps wondered, well, who are you out with? You know, that would have given us a clue. But there's really no clue that there's any rift between those two. She's supportive of him. She encourages him to go to, well, we know why she encourages him to go to the psychologist, because 
uh, he's sort of in on it in a way. But uh, yeah, so the the thing is, she is cheating on him, and this character has not come to life. It's her boyfriend, and they wanted to get him out of the picture so that they could run off and be together. Yeah. But that I like that twist, but I just don't think they built up to that. It's a good twist. Again, I think it just it lacked uh, a certain punch that sometimes you get. In. And again, when you're dealing with any anthology film, there's always going to be the stories that have that. And then the stories that leave you a little, again, a lackluster feel to them. This is probably better than some other segments I've seen in some other short story or uh, anthology films, but not the best. I put it middling. You know, it's 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 uh, certainly atmospheric, and it's it's gives you a little bit of a twist. Not just not necessarily uh, a, a classic twist. And then there's sort of a twist twist at the very end, which was sort of out of the blue. I don't... That didn't make sense to me either. Well, we won't say that twist, but... We'll leave that twist out, but yeah. It, uh... Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is a good point, and I... Anything else to say about that? I say we move on. Yeah, we'll move on, yeah, because we've got... These are short segments, so we won't spend much time in each. And with the wraparound, with in between each, we go back to the police station or the real estate, and they're making comments like, something strange about the house. (laughs) And... Haven't you guessed its secret yet? And all things like that. Uh, but that—that that is the transition then to Waxworks, the second, which is also about twenty minutes long. Um, is that they're talking about how strange the house is? And here's another example. Yes. So Waxworks uh, has this is the Peter Cushing segment uh, playing the character Philip Grayson, essentially uh, about you know two men being obsessed with a wax figure of a woman from their past. Uh, the nutshell version of, of the uh, of the story. Got to immediately mention it. I'm sure you noticed it. Of course, the uh, Christopher Lee Dracula waxwork yep. that was seen uh, in more than one scene. Uh, in clear clear in- intent to uh, to give Christopher Lee a little extra screen time uh, and, a, and a shout out to the uh, to Dracula and of course Peter Cushing's work alongside Christopher Lee in the Dracula films. Yeah, and this one is uh, I I don't know I thought it was kind of weak I mean I love Cushing and that was great and his friend Joss Ackland is a very recognizable actor I don't know if I've seen him in anything when he was this young I think he's sort of had a resurgence late in his career very recognizable but I don't know what what did they do to deserve their fates is that clear I mean I think they both knew that woman and they see the wax statue that represents her but you know, why does she want to end up with their heads on her plate? And I, I it, didn't really get it. It's a weaker segment, and, and I have to... Peter Cushing's performance in this, for me, was overshadowed by... Because I had done some of the research before, some of the research after, and, and I wish I wouldn't have known this little tidbit, is that Peter Cushing didn't want to be in this film. Um, he was trying to get out of his contract to take care of his uh, his sick wife, who died in January of 1971 before the film was released, um, and I think that that may have somewhat hindered his performance. I hindered his performance. I don't. I mean, he was good in it, uh, but for me, I, knowing that he didn't want to be doing it, and knowing that ultimately his wife would be passing away, and of course the tremendous and traumatic impact that would have, forever changing his career. Peter Cushing, as a human being, never recovered from the loss of his wife um, and was, was clearly evident, I think, when you look at the, the work he did. And again, Cushing did a lot of work after his wife passed, but, and he did some good work, certainly. 
but I think that he also did some some films uh, in the early to mid seventies that were not his best work, and I think he was just trying to get back into it. And sometimes in some of his films, in knowing that this post uh, life, I think you can see that there's. For I have always been able to pick up on it that there there's something sometimes is missing in some of his performances from this time period. Not all the time, but sometimes it just seemed like maybe he was going through the motions, which would would support be supported by the fact of of uh, everyone who says that Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing was just an amazing person, but never did bounce back after his wife passed. Yeah, and I'm I curious about that you know what movies were made and maybe you know instead of release dates we should probably look at dates of production but twins of evil also came out in 71 and i was under the impression that was the first movie he made after his wife died and that is hands down my favorite cushing performance i think you're right because he's he is harsh in that film and and i think that if i remember correctly i remember reading that that he was channeling some of his anger into that role, which is why that's that's probably is one of his best roles. And I think you are correct on that. So House of Drip Blood could have been made mid mid to end nineteen seventy to be released in seventy one. And and here's the other thing too, what uh, these are British film well, they're not all British films, but this was a British film. Its United States release could have been several months after it was released in Britain. So it was April. Yeah. So it was, yeah, February, so, UK, April, US. Timing, I don't know how close to her death she was. but uh, And I do sort of want to take a uh, counterpoint. I thought uh, his whatever state of mind he might have been in contributed to the effectiveness of his role. He you know, is basically a, a single man, never been married, goes to the house for seclusion. They're worried about him being bored. He goes, oh, no, I can never be bored. He's got his books and all that. There's scenes of him walking around a town kind of wondering. I mean, it's sort of a contemplative uh, character that he's playing. And I I think even knowing that about his wife, I don't I, – I, I thought it worked for him if that was going on. It might, yeah, I mean, I, I could see that. I mean, I know that – in some of the roles he did after his wife passed, I, you know, there's certainly, you know, a sadness to a couple of the films that he did, uh, some anthology films. The what's the, uh, the the one where he plays the uh, the the lonely neighborhood guy who ends up passing away. I think it was in maybe was that Tales from the Crypt. I think so. Uh, which Grimsdyke? Yeah, which would have been, you know, that was what seventy two ish, I believe. So again, that would have been again one of the first films he would have made after his wife passed, and there was still uh, a certain air of sadness about him, which he channeled that I think in that particular in that particular uh, f- film role, especially. So, still, as I said earlier, uh, Peter Cushing elevates any film that he's in, and so the segment, while you know I may not think it's one of his better uh, performances, uh, it's still Peter Cushing, and I mean, and Peter Cushing's better than. Practically anyone else, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, so anything else to say about Waxworks? Not uh, not about Waxworks, no. no. Okay. Sweets to the Swede is next. It's about 23 minutes. This is the one Christopher Lee's in. Yes. Uh, he's a widower, widower who rents the house with his uh, young daughter, Jane. Um, he hires a woman, Ann Norton, to look after Jane. And uh, Jane becomes suspicious of the way that he's treating his daughter and little tidbit about this one. You see the character, uh, Christopher Lee's character is John Reed. He is uh, reading The Lord of the Rings. 
I, I thought that that's what it was. I did some some look and said, yep, sure enough. Of course, Christopher Lee would end up playing in The Lord of the Rings uh, some uh, many decades later. But he was, uh, at, in real life, a, uh, a fan of, uh, of uh, Tolkien's work. And so it very, very well could be that, you know, that was either written intentionally or perhaps it was something he wanted to throw in uh, to give a, an, an indirect shout-out to Tolkien's work, which was popular around that time period. Uh, it was becoming increasingly popular still several years before the animated version would be done. But, yeah, Tolkien was, was being read by many college students around that time and in a lot of uh, uh, people like uh, Christopher Lee who, who loved that type of novels and, and, and works and such. So a little tidbit about, uh, about that that you might have missed. Uh, Nyree Don Porter plays the character of Anne Norton in this one. Uh, I did not have anything else that she had done as an well, actress. Well, she so. made another Amicus uh, anthology after this from Beyond the Grave, but I didn't find much else on yeah, either. Yeah, she, yeah, one of those actresses who kind of came and went rather quickly. So we, we soon find out it's not uh, Christopher Lee that is uh, potentially evil here or causing problems. It's the daughter, and there's sort of a voodoo witch type thing going on with her. Um, nice little twist. I, I, you know, yeah. Uh, again... I like this segment. Uh, as I said earlier, I always feel like Peter Cushing elevates. I sometimes I love Christopher Lee, but I don't always believe that he elevates a segment. Sometimes I think again he just kind of cashes the paycheck and does the role, which is always good to see him on screen. I don't know. What did you think of, of Lee's performance in this? I thought it was fine. I mean, he's sort of the victim. There's uh, you know a scene where he wakes up in bed with chest pains. We'll find out because his daughter is sticking a needle in a wax voodoo doll of him uh so it's a little bit different probably than he usually plays i thought he was fine but it didn't stand out adequately he was again i think he was just yeah again it was a turning in a good performance but it wasn't one of his greatest roles and again hard to do when you're talking about a short segment in an anthology film but you know i think i think uh probably name recognition was more so than than what he contributed to the film. I think having his name as part of the, the cast was probably more uh, of an impact than, than his overall performance in the film. Again, which wasn't bad, but wasn't necessarily something that would be one of his uh, one of his legendary roles. So I don't really have much else to say about Sweets to the Sweet, do you? <laughs> nope, it was, it was good, but, uh, you know, uh, average, an okay. average segment. Okay, well then let's get to the... Uh, Climax, The Cloak, it was 17 minutes long. I think by far the best of the stories, Definitely. and I think in most of the anthologies they usually do save the, the best for last. The better ones, anyway. There's a few that, that uh, don't. I, I can't remember. There was one I saw in it too long ago that saved, I think, the worst segment for last. And I can't remember the name of that movie now, but it, it ended it with a thud. Mm. It was like, wow, okay, someone wasn't paying attention to the <laughs> order of the films. In this case, you're correct. I think yeah. it's, it's by far the best most likely because of John Pertwee's uh, performance, uh, yeah. of course, the legendary Doctor Who alumni. Yeah, <laughs> you've uh, mentioned that. So he plays an actor, a famous actor, uh, Paul Henderson. This is the one they're searching for at the beginning. Apparently he's run off before. He's a received fame from being this great horror actor, so he has a bit of a uh, attitude. Uh, they're not too worried that he's gone because he's done this before but yes. he's renting the house because he's filming a vampire uh, movie nearby 
and he arrives with uh, Carla Lind, played by Ingrid Pitt. Yes, the lovely Ingrid Pitt. Yes, and he is not too thrilled, and this is where his attitude shows with the production values of the the movie that they're making. He has all sorts of suggestions, and they're just trying to get the, the thing made. But to make it a little more authentic, he wants to find a, a cloak or a cape that uh, is better than the manufactured one they have on the set. So he goes to a, a local store, creepy local store, uh, <laughs> that closes as soon as they... Uh, as he buys the cape. From there, hijinks ensue. Indeed. Um, again, just I gotta throw the doctor reference in there. There's a we mentioned there's this little scene in the in the mirror where you've got pictures of uh, uh, from like Paul Henderson's career. There's a, yeah, of course, in, which is John Pertwee, right? So uh, there's a picture of uh, Pertwee driving a uh, a yellow roadster, and that's the yellow roadster Bessie. That's a uh, I think it was a publicity shot. That was uh, used for Doctor Who the previous year. So, uh, again, kind of a shout-out to the role that he had ta- he had assumed the year earlier. Uh, and, again, kind of natural just to take that studio shot and kind of flash it in and just uh, enhance the background a little bit. But what did you think of, uh, of Pertwee's Dracula reference? Did you catch that? Yes, yes. That yes. was great. He uh, is talking about Dracula, the one with Lugosi, not this new fellow. Yeah, mm-hmm. a slight, slight yeah. dig against Christopher Lee, uh, who was also in this film, obviously. So I thought that was funny. That was a nice, uh, a nice uh, little shout out there. Well, you know, your your boy John here that you're so proud of almost wasn't in the movie. They wanted Vincent Price to play. Indeed. And it, this is interesting to me for so many reasons. Uh, he couldn't take the role because he had a contract with AIP. So they didn't let him take it, so they recast it. But, you know, here's an actor playing a version of himself, sort of a meta look at the actor, and that's exactly what he's going to do in Madhouse, which we talk about next. I'm kind of glad that Price didn't get it. I mean, it would have been nice to have another Price-Cushing-Lee film, although, again, they wouldn't have had screen time, right? Pertwee, aside from Doctor Who, is uh, probably best known for, for a couple of other things. One... He is is a vocal actor, and so he he can do a lot of different uh, voices, and uh, oftentimes yeah, facial characterizations, which he would incorporate sometimes into Doctor Who. And then there's another children's uh, television show called Wurzel Gummidge, in which he plays basically a scarecrow that comes to life. And if I remember correctly, I've seen a couple segments. He has like this crazy Cockney accent, unlike. You know, Doctor Who, which has been popular here in the States, Wurzel Gummidge is something that's a lot harder to find. As with a lot of children's shows, it's, you know, there's not a lot of home video availability of it, but it's uh, certainly a little quirky. I've seen some episodes just because it's got, you know, John Pertwee in it, but he's definitely a, an amazing actor, very um, eccentric, very off the wall, and so he doesn't have a lot of, like, big, big film credits to him. This is really, I think, kind of the peak of of his film career, you know, John Pertwee, once he would leave the role of Doctor Who in, in 74, um, he came back and played Doctor Who two more times for the uh, 20th anniversary special and the 30th anniversary special. He did some audio work in the 90s and then uh, sadly passed away in 1996. So, you know, he spent really, post-Doctor Who, he spent the rest of his career for the most part living the part of being the third doctor and, and going to conventions and such from a, from an actor's standpoint outside of his work in Wurzel Gummidge, 
he didn't really have any opportunity to do something like he did in the House that Drip Blood, not to the level or to the the uh, longevity that, of course, this movie is still being talked about today. So I'm glad that he got it because that that gives him some non Doctor Who cred. Uh, although it would have been fun, and I think Vincent Price would have been able to do his own take on it. It was nice to see Pertwee get the opportunity. Yeah, and you you mentioned things that I would say are his mannerisms or his style of acting, and they're very unique in this crazy look in the eyes. And you know, I he was so good. I I have a hard time picturing Vincent Price in it. But uh, it would have been different. It would have been totally it, different because I don't think Vincent Price Vincent Price would have would have done his comedic horrific charm kind of his take on it it would have been totally different right right and the he in this reminds me of the fearless vampire killers sort of that kind of style of of crazy wild-eyed vampire and so this is the one that had all the doctor who references that i found did you find any others in this um really i mean uh ingrid pitt of course starred in an episode of doctor who um the Time Monster, if I'm remembering correctly, which would have been a few years after this. And uh, that's about the only other... That's the only one I had, so you're going to have to educate me. Okay, and I uh, apologize. My note is here, but I think this is throughout the movie, not just in this scene. So that's why I was thrown okay. earlier when trying right. to find him. So we have Pertwee. Peter Cushing played Doctor Who in two movies, uh, although it's not... Considered, this is true. This you know, is true. Yeah, a doctor, I, and I finally understand why, and it's so simple. I before I knew anything about it, I was like, "Well, how can Peter Cushing not be? He was in two movies, but you know, the very nature of his being that he is just a, a man." Um, yeah, right? it's, yeah, it's it's just like an alternate universe of Doctor because you've got the TARDIS, and the exterior looks the same, but the interior is different than what we see on the television show. And he plays a mad man, not a mad scientist, but he plays a scientist as opposed to. Uh, a Time Lord, which is what he was in the television series. He had some of the similar characters, but the granddaughter was much younger, and you know the, the Daleks are certainly the Daleks, and the stories are certainly very similar to their televised versions, but the core is, is that Peter Cushing is a human uh, scientist as opposed to an alien scientist, which doesn't necessarily alter the stories that much, but is in direct contrast to what you know the character of the Doctor really was about. That aside, those are two very fun films, and certainly uh, can be watched in the vein of, of uh, classic Doctor Who. And it's it's not that hard to necessarily imagine that Peter Cushing's version is is different. But again, every other actor who's played Doctor Who or played the Doctor and Doctor Who is is different. So certainly worthy of, of at least getting a solid Doctor Who reference. Good, and so I get some points with you for that. You get Doctor okay, Who. Well, well, you just wait. Okay. So, Joanna Lumley, ha- absolutely fabulous Joanna Lumley, is a small part on the film crew in The Cloak. I have, okay, yes. And she was apparently played a female version of the Doctor in... Oh my gosh, yes. Comic Relief, Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death. Curse in, of Fatal uh, Death. In 1999. Yep. It's filmed uh, very much in the style of Doctor Who. Doctor Who had ended 10 years earlier. They had done a, a very small special in 93 to celebrate the 30th anniversary. There had been a movie in 96 that failed to regenerate, Doctor Who pun, regenerate the uh, the show. And uh, Curse of the Fatal Death is really like you're watching classic Who. And yes, there's this whole take on the Doctor 
going through regeneration after regeneration after regeneration at the end of the film. Hugh Grant plays a version of, of the Doctor. And yes, then we finally end out with, with Joanna Lumley playing a female Doctor. And Joanna Lumley is very, very attractive. I first glimpse of her was back in the late 70s when she was on the New Avengers. So, um, yeah, okay, good. good and that, it doesn't stop there. Okay, All so right. we have, uh, you mentioned the store where they buy the cloak or where character buys the cloak the shop owner is an old man looked familiar to me definitely a uh, a character his name is jeffrey Bailden. my research indicates that he was offered the role of doctor who twice didn't take it but he later played him in two audio dramas really now i will admit that there is a lot of audio that's been released over the last 15 20 years of doctor who and uh it's it's kind of a running joke amongst Doctor Who fans. It's like none of us have the money to to keep it because these audio productions sometimes run uh, easily forty dollars for a story. Is um, this from uh, what are they called? Big Big Finish. Big Finish. Yeah. Which I'll excuse me for interrupting, but hey, it's only fair. This weekend they're having a fifty percent off Dark Shadows sale and other Dark Shadows audio. They they sale. are top notch yeah. audio productions, and I know they do Dark Shadows and. Uh, I, I, I do have several Doctor Who big finish, and they are absolutely uh, tremendous. So I did not know that he that he did that. So keep it coming. Do you have more? One more. One and more. this is in the wraparound, the, I believe, the real estate. No, not the real estate. The inspector, Holloway, John Bennett. Okay. You, you can't take it from there because all I wrote I was I another Doctor Who connection. So uh, let's see if well, I could... You know, the, from this time period, of course, I think any any British actor at some point or another played a role on Doctor Who in, in some way, shape, or form. Because, of course, Doctor Who ran from 63 to 89, countless episodes per season. Uh, yeah, there's so many. You can you can do some deep dive connections. And, and I will say that I am a diehard Doctor Who fan. However, I do enjoy Sunlight. <laughs> and uh, I do have to get out of the house once in a while. So I can't always do the deep dive connection. So right offhand, I don't know what he may have played. Well, he was in 11 episodes. He played General Finch from 74 to 77. 74 is General Finch. Does it give the name of the story that he was Slash in? Slash La Hesin Chang. Uh, wow. Would have been with Pertwee, right? Well, no. 74 would have been Tom Baker. Wow. I know I'm drawing a blank. Maybe the Seeds of Doom. Doctor Who fans out there are probably picking up on that. I'm trying to think stories from that time period that would have had a general. I think this we can talk. We'll we'll find out and talk about it in old business next time. Okay, that's what we'll do. We'll do some research. I I know if I I had to, 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 to say from this time period, I would say maybe... Maybe the Seeds of Doom. Maybe, was there a general in the Talons of Wayne Cheyang? I don't know. You're asking me? I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the last thing I want to say about this is, uh, or I want to ask you, what? Yeah. so Ingrid Pitt, iconic. I didn't think she was that great in this. She was okay. She was okay. I have to admit, I, Ingrid Pitt is iconic, um, and she's, she's done a lot of interesting roles. And, and maybe this is heresy. And maybe I will have to turn in my monster movie card, but I've never been as big a fan as of, of Ingrid Pitt as other actresses. Um, I think she's lovely. I think she's a good actress. 
but I think that there are, are others out there who are who are more lovely and who are better. Um, again, nothing against Ingrid Pitt. She is certainly legendary, but average performance in this, I would agree. Okay. What else do you want to say about it? The only other two things I've got, uh, just a slight reference, is that Freddie Francis, the legendary uh, uh, director, was actually originally going to direct, but he was already committed to a project in Hollywood. Uh, so Peter Duffel took over. Ultimately, the project that Freddie Francis was involved in fell through, and, and he could have done the film after all. Exactly. And uh, last but not least, of course, the availability. Uh, this is not on Blu-ray yet, but it, it's been uh, released on DVD twice. Now, the original version is the one I had, and uh, it has gone out of print, and I'm seeing some astronomic prices on that. Um, it has been re-released as recent as 2013 by Hen's Tooth Video, which I knew they, they tend to do some re-release, bargain basement re-releases, I should say. So I don't know which version you may have watched. I guess, did it have more of a greenish cover or a brownish cover? Do you remember? Uh, I do not remember. So that the greenish cover would have been more the original, the brownish cover would have been the more uh, recent release. So I don't know if it was just a straightforward Re-release, they just basically, you know, slapped another video name on it uh, and called it good. Or if there was any uh, changes between the two, but readily available, cheap price. It's an Amicus anthology. It's got Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Pertwee. You have to add it to your collection, even if some of the segments are a little lackluster. It's still a lot of fun. We made maybe we didn't sound like we enjoyed it as much because I think maybe we were a little lackluster on some of the segments, but collectively. Uh, again, it's an Amicus anthology. It's a fun film to just plop in and, and have maybe have going on in the background and, and catching some of the fun stuff. And you got the Pertwee per- segment at the end that is, uh, that is certainly uh, the best. But, uh, you know, Peter Cushing's always fun and, and Christopher Lee, too. So certainly worth adding to your collection. And the ra- I do like the wraparound, and that's another thing. Anthologies that I don't like is either there's no wraparound, it's just short films stitched together, uh, or one that doesn't sometimes they're not actually involved with the other stories. I like when they're integrated and Amicus did that pretty well through most of their movies. So yeah, I, I like it. I, I do want to ask you and I hope someday we'll we'll talk more about Amicus in a podcast, but how does this rank with other ones in your opinion? So we have like Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, Torture Garden, Asylum, Tales from the Crypt, of all the four, all of those. Where, where does it fall for you? Man. I you know I'm a sucker for Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. I think that's that's fun. Um, I also like Torture Garden. That's the one with Burgess Meredith. Yeah. If I'm correct. I mean, there's some weaker stories in that, but there's also some really creepy ones. So, and Burgess Meredith is just that's a wonderful wraparound story. I like Asylum. Uh, again, that's a I think that's gone public domain. Maybe at, at times, maybe not anymore. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe. In the middle, I wouldn't say it's the best. I wouldn't say it's the worst. Um, you know, it's better than maybe a couple of the others, but it's a, certainly a, a worthy addition. So I'd put it somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I do too. I do not like Torture Garden. To me, that's one of the, the weaker ones. Love Dr. Horror. My favorite is Asylum. Um, but yeah, I would say this is middle. It's I think, and though I know a lot of people don't like Torture Garden for some reason, I don't know, the whole Jack Palance segment in that one, the whole Poe segment is just bizarre and <laughs> creepy, and uh, I love Burgess Meredith. So I, I, you know, that's one of those films where I will totally admit, probably not as good as I like it to be. So, 
All right. Well, let's. Uh, we got one more movie. Let's play one more trailer and uh, come back and talk about Madhouse. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, for the next few moments, you will be witnessing scenes from a new motion picture starring Vincent Price, master of the macabre. To those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome to the madhouse. Perhaps it was inevitable. For years, this man has played the role of Dr. Death. he has pretended to be a hideous murdering monster now at last he has actually become one american international presents vincent price in madhouse where lunacy lives all i ever got was a stake through the heart tonight i would like you to meet my next victim Fear lurks, evil walks, and death waits. Death is the name of a doctor you've met. Madhouse, a cinematic shock treatment, guaranteed to scare you out of your mind. No one ever leaves Madhouse. And our final film is Madhouse, released in 1974, starring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Vincent Price is Paul Toombs, a horror actor famous for playing the role of Dr. Death in five movies, several years after his fiancée is murdered at a New Year's Eve party and Toombs spends time in a mental institution, he travels to London to resurrect the character as part of a television series. When a series of murders begins, Toombs questions his sanity. He doesn't know if he's the killer or not. So, Madhouse, Vincent Price, what did we think of this? Well, this film comes uh, at a time of transition. It's released uh, in the UK in November of 74, December of 74 in the US, so not much of a gap between uh, countries' release. Coming at the end of an era for this particular style of old-school horror film, by this point we've had Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I believe what Last House on the Left would have been released around this time as well. We were starting to see films like It's Alive, so there, there was certainly some changes uh, in the style of film. I think that Vincent Price was entering a stage of his career, as was Peter Cushing, where they would begin making more guest appearances and weren't necessarily going to be headlining films. And I think if you were to look at horror films, this was probably one of the the last true horror films that Vincent Price would headline. He would still have others over the years, but they would start to become a bit more sporadic, a bit more spread out. The style of this film, you know, has that early 1970s British horror flair to it. That was also... Again, an old-school feel to it that was really beginning to die out about this point. So to me, I, I just have always thought of this film as one of the, uh, one of the last films of the, of the classic you know, British horror genre. And we were on the, on the you know, brink of some big changes in the, in the next couple of years 
coming up in, in the horror film genre. Yeah, and I, you told me that today, and I hadn't really put two and two together, but I'm looking at my list here. I made a chart of all the movies of the three and when they crossed over. And, you know, every year, five, even six movies per person uh, up through the 70s, and then, you know, 74, you're right, after Madhouse, it's two at best in the coming years after that. So I, I had never made that connection, but you're absolutely right. This is definitely an end of an era. And that's a kind of a cool story uh, to do that with uh, as far as Price playing the actor who's looking back on his career. Uh, lots of meta stuff in this movie. I absolutely love oh, yeah. the clips yeah. from the Poe movies and yeah, all of get, that. Uh, and, and, well, and in the credits we have special thanks to... Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff. That's uh, right. So uh, we clips, clips of theirs. Tales of Terror, which was uh, Vincent Price and uh, Basil Rathbone. And, of course, The Raven with uh, Vincent Price and Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre, and a young Jack Nicholson. That's just a classic film. So uh, we had clips from The Pit of the Pendulum, clips from uh, The Haunted Palace. They did a little bit of, of tweaking to that particular scene to make it a Dr. Death Scene. I think they did some audio changes on that to, to make it uh, seem like a Dr. Death film. Um, so certainly uh, paying uh, homage to a lot of the, uh, the films from the AIP era, which um, ironically, after 14 years with AIP, this would be the final film that Vincent Price would do. Again, another ending of an era uh, and moving into the, the twilight of his career. Of course, you know, Vincent Price would only be with us, what, another uh, another 10 years, right? Or no, 20 years, because he passed away 93. in 93, but really, in the last 10 years of his career, didn't do very many films. I mean, he did some sporadic things here or there, mostly smaller roles, bit roles. I think probably one of the most prominent films that he did was The Whales of August, which was not a horror film. He did like Edward Scissorhands, right? That's a mainstream film, but I mean, he had a small part in that. So, I think that uh, you know, you've got a you've got a great cast. You've got uh, uh, Vincent Price playing the lead role of Paul Toombs. You've got Peter Cushing playing Herbert Flay. You've got uh, Adrian Corey, which I didn't recognize her name, but she seemed familiar. I did a little bit of research, and of course, Adrian Corey plays uh, Faye Corstairs. Flay. Uh, it's not a Faye Flay. <laughs> she had a lot of films to her credit. Uh, Devil Girl from Mars, uh, Corridors of Blood, which starred Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee, uh, The Telltale Heart, A Study in Terror, Moon Zero Two, A Clockwork Orange, you had Vampire uh, Circus, and yes, a Doctor Who reference. Uh, 1980 episode of uh, Doctor Who, uh, Tom Baker era again it's kind of a changing era for doctor who she was in the leisure hive which was a four-part episode uh, of course this is based on the novel uh, devil day by angus hall a uh, nice uh, scottish name there uh, it's his uh, last and most well-known film he did a lot of work as an editor it doesn't bear a lot of uh, resemblance to the novel which is you know usually 99 percent of the time the case there's some key differences though i mean in the novel the character of paul toombs he's overweight he is uh, a bit of a sexual predator. Uh, he may very well have murdered his wife. His uh, famous uh, cinematic alter ego is named Dr. Dis, I believe is maybe how you would pronounce it, D-I-S. Uh, so it's not Dr. Death. 
But, uh, you know, certainly they, they paid reference to the, to the film, and a reprint of the novel was issued uh, under the title Madhouse to capitalize on the, uh, on the new film. Uh, you had... Um, I, sorry to interrupt. I think you got... You said he was an, mostly an editor. I think that you're talking about the director, maybe? Jim Clark? Or was Angus also a, an editor? Well, uh, that's a, maybe that. Maybe I was referring to the director there. Maybe that's a. Maybe I was. Um, well, Jim Clark, the director, he didn't direct many films. He was mostly an editor. That may have been what I was thinking of. Okay. All right. So, um, and an example of his work, The Innocence, which is amazing oh, classic. Film. And then yes, after yes. this one, he did Marathon Man. That's a movie I love. Indeed. So. Indeed. So, uh, okay. So I, I stand corrected well, on that. Well, we don't know. Maybe Angus was an editor also. Probably I not. I, Probably I didn't, not. I didn't I, run across that. I think you are, I think <laughs> you are correct. Uh, the dangers of copying and pasting when you're putting together notes. Okay, so the screenplay of this was by uh, Ken Levinson and Greg Morrison, which neither one of them really did anything. Greg Morrison, I think this was his only credit. Uh, Ken Levinson did a few other things. Um, so maybe they were catching in again at the end of a genre. And with the genre changing, they were not part of this new new horror uh, community that was popping up. You had some uh, dialogue was was uh, by Robert Quarry, who, of course, Robert Quarry played the character of Oliver Quayle. Robert Quarry, of course, well-known for uh, Count Yorga, The Return of Count Yorga, and Dr. Fibes Rises Again. So, I don't know, maybe he added some of his own dialogue, some few twists into the script, but uh, uh, he certainly... Was he was wearing the Count Yorga vampire costume at the party, which is something he probably had and brought to the table. I would I would suspect so. Uh, not surprising that he might have had some influence on on the script itself. So I, I, I'm going to back up for a minute and talk about the the character of Doctor Death and the, the movie references they show. The, two things disappoint me. I said I really liked the the references, and I did, but I would almost rather have seen uh, at least a mix of some scenes that were made for this that showed the character of Dr. Death. Because yes. these clips from other movies, he wasn't playing Dr. Death, I guess maybe in the one where they altered the, the audio. But I, I thought that was weird because here, here's a man who made his life playing this character and they're showing retrospective clips and on the talk show and everything and they're not in Dr. Death movies. And I think perhaps maybe um, by this point, the, the budget maybe wasn't as high on this film as it was on others. This is a particular movie that I know at one point had fallen into uh, public domain. It was popping up on, rather cheaply on, on home video versions and sets and such. Uh, I think in recent years it's been, uh, the copyright's been perhaps renewed or perhaps reinforced for the first time. Um, so it's, uh, it's been given a, a you know, more official release lately. But uh, maybe that played into a part. They had, they had a limited budget. And they thought, well, we'll just uh, capitalize. We'll use some of the clips that we have access to. It's not going to cost us anything. We don't have to film anything new, you know, homage to these classic films. And, hey, it's going to save us a little bit of money. Yeah, and that I, – I really – I'm interested in the putting together of a movie. And this being an AIP amicus collaboration, maybe all AIP's part in this was donating the, the clips so they didn't have to pay to use them. I don't know. That, that interests me. Yeah, possibly the Vincent Price – thing too we talked about he would right. still been under the contract to AIP this was his last film for them he did other work besides I mean, he wasn't exclusive you know to AIP but from the, as from a horror genre perspective I think he was perhaps a bit more uh, limited in, in having to do work for AIP so that may have been why the part of the collaboration as well 
and, and certainly maybe to, to try to, again, from a budgetary perspective, let's crank out a horror film, throw in a couple of well-known actors, and, and hopefully make a little bit of money at the box office, which, unfortunately, ultimately, this did not. This fared poorly against this new style of horror film and it was uh and i can i can imagine at the time it probably would have felt a little dated i i can sit and enjoy it now but i think if you're 1974 and you've seen films like the exorcist and uh, the texas chainsaw massacre and you're seeing a lot of these more these films that have a lot of flesh and blood and 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 guts and stuff uh, madhouse would have seemed a little quaint Hmm. and perhaps for an older genre or, or older generation and probably why it didn't necessarily uh, do well at the box office. And maybe that's why I never saw it in you know, Oklahoma. Maybe it didn't do well, and they didn't roll it out. They didn't roll it out. But that's and a again. This is the as we said. This is the end of an era. So I mean, you know, the fact that it did poorly, you know, wasn't going to convince them. That, hey, maybe we can make one more. Maybe another one. Maybe two more. And so you, you begin to see less output from from Vincent Price and Peter Cushing at this point because they're part of the old regime. I can't imagine them in anything more violent. I mean, they did a few, Vincent Price would pop up in a few other things that even when they were released, like the monster club or he did another, he did a couple of like bit parts in some horror films in the eighties that his participation was old school. And then some of the other elements maybe weren't as much. And then Peter Cushing, I'm trying to think, what he would have starred in from a horror perspective, Shockwaves, what came out in 77. He did a couple of things. but Yeah, he sort of went the sort of adventure route yeah. with a couple, like At the Earth's Core, he did in 76. And Land of the Minotaur I've never seen, but that was 76 also. That's, that's, know, it's, it's, yeah, it's got some horror elements to it, but it's low budget and it's really not... I don't, if I remember remember correctly, it doesn't necessarily. It feels again a little bit quaint. Mm. It, it's it's definitely more of an old school. And in '75, he made Legend of the Werewolf and the Ghoul. And I don't know if you know this, but in 1977, did you know he's in Star Wars? I, I've heard of this little Star Wars film. The real person, not a CGI recreation. Don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. Okay, you got me started. You know, we talk about these legendary actors, and is it right to resurrect them? You know, um, and on one hand, yes, I'd love to see Cushing and Price, and and now, of course, Lee and and Karloff and Lagosi and all of them come back. But I, you know, I've got a problem resurrecting these these greats in a CGI format. Yes, it was cool to see Grand Moff Tarkin again. I would have rather had an actor who resembled him play the role than attempt to do a CGI rendition, which I'm sorry, it wasn't that good. It lacked the the, the skin was, was too soft in my in my opinion. The eyes lacked humanity. And that's one of you know that's one of the still they, they are trying to capture that human essence in, in the eyes and CGI. And there are times they've done better than this. I've seen better CGI. Now I'm gonna give it a fair amount of credit. Yes, they did good for what the technology, you know, again, didn't exist in a few years ago. But I've seen better CGI renditions. And for someone as iconic as Peter Cushing, I don't know. I think that either you knock it out of the park, or if you don't, then just leave well enough alone. I will say it was a million times better than 
the horrific Carrie Fisher <laughs> CGI. Now, there's Star Wars fans probably ready to, you know, crucify me at the moment. And, and to any Star Wars fans out there, I will just say, live long and prosper. <laughs> so I've kind of turned around on this. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast. Since then, Rogue One has come out on home video. I've watched it knowing what I was going to see. I didn't get as upset and I kind of, I thought it was kind of cool to see him. Now, also in the last week, I saw a side-by-side picture of Peter Cushing profile with Ray Fine's profile. Very, very similar looking. How cool would that have been? I think if you had someone like that recreating the character, I don't know, I think that's less offensive than recreating him. I agree. I, I think, I think, now I haven't gone back to rewatch uh, Rogue One. I, you know, I like the movie. But, you know, I am a Star Trek fan over Star Wars, but I do love Star Wars. And uh, I, you know, I thought Rogue One was a good film. I haven't gone back to rewatch it, and I know a lot of times those films are better upon second viewing. So I will someday soon rewatch it, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll appreciate, you know, Cushing's, uh, quote unquote, Cushing's uh, appearance in the film better than the second time around. But I agree. If there's an actor who closely resembles, and in, in all ways, you know, appearance and, and and vocally and such, why not? And plus, why and, not make the effort and just have them do it? And, and that would have been better for me. And, and that also gives the hope. I mean, if it's a strong character that people like, that he could be in other projects. You know, I don't, I don't want to well, see. A, here's a bold idea. You know, how about it? Just a new character. Well, that's true. You know, yes. you could have easily had had put someone else in that role. Having the role of Tarkin was the the token connection to you know the Star Wars Episode Four, which was nice because I mean Rogue One takes place right before. It wasn't necessary. You could have created a new character that again you could potentially use in other films, or in the very least, you know again Disney. I'm surprised you didn't jump on this. You create a new character. You've got five, you know, variants of new action figure that you can create, <laughs> and and at least uh, two graphic novels, three novel spinoffs, and potentially a spinoff film of a new character. Speaking of that, I saw also this week that the you know the Funko Mystery Minis, yes. they're doing a Star Wars set, and there is a Tarkin. So how many will I purchase before I find my? Little Tarkin to go with my Tarkin collection. Little Tarkin, so. but the movie Madhouse. <laughs> yes. Uh, so <laughs> I still didn't get to give my second reason that I that I was disappointed, sort of, with this meta retro approach here. Doctor Death is such an iconic character. I mean, he, I mentioned he was on the cover of Famous Monsters. I loved the look of that character. He's hardly in the movie. Yeah, um, it's an iconic. Uh, yeah, it is. It is, and I think they should have they should have had him a lot more, a lot more in the film, definitely. I don't know why they didn't. So this one is, uh, you know, I think we said in the synopsis, he begins to question his sanity. So, you know, he doesn't really remember if he killed his fiance at the New Year's Eve party. Uh, he goes into an institution because of that. He gets out. He's, this is about the only time that the title Madhouse even comes across. Yeah. And that's, it's a catchy title, but uh, a very loose connection to what actually takes place in the film. Yeah. So he's on shaky ground as it is, and then the murders start happening, and I've just restated this synopsis. I apologize, but my point is the uh, big thing of the movie is did he or didn't he? And I'm going to say spoiler, he didn't. But how do you think they handled the reveal of who did do it? 
it's and you can it, read in. It, I don't know. To me, it lacked a little. Yeah. Well, they, did you think they made it? Do you think they were pushing us to think it was Robert Corey? Oh, I yeah. It's it's the it's the usual. As in any time, there's a big reveal, right? You know, who's the real killer? You, you do the uh, the, you know, the red airing, right? You, know, right? you try to send them off into a different. You know, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's clearly what. So I think they either needed another character to be a possible person, or they needed to play up the you know the real killers. I I mean, you don't. I didn't ever really think he was even a possibility. There was nothing in. I agree. His character or his behavior up to that point. In fact, it was physically impossible for him to have done one of the murders because we see him on screen somewhere else when that is taking place. Yeah. So I I can sort of look past that. And, you know, I didn't, I've seen this several times. I didn't notice that until I read that. So, you know, we're nitpicking. I don't know if most people would. And I think it is a cool twist. I just think it could have been a lot more effective. You know, and the, the movie itself was fun. You know, again, uh, I wouldn't rank this as one of uh, Vincent Price's best. I think that uh, certainly not his worst. I think there was potential to do more with this movie than they actually did. Um, and again, it just may have been the time period and budgetary constraints, perhaps, and just maybe coming at the, at the end of this classic horror yeah. cycle. Maybe just a change of times. Change of times. And, and what was the motivation behind it? Make this film maybe five, six, seven years earlier. Uh, I think we would have probably gotten a film that would have been, would have had you know a bit more gusto to it. Would have been uh, more aggressive in its nature, and we would have perhaps seen some of the things that we wanted to see had it been made uh, a few years earlier. As it was, as it was, coming at the end of a genre, uh, a bit of fatigue perhaps, and it was just let's get this one out, and uh, we know it's it's you know things are winding down and. Let's just kind of get this done and get it out. Um, I don't know if there was ever really any intent to revitalize the genre of classic horror films. Was it? Was there really any attempt for this film to be bigger than it was, or was it just let's crank it out? And, and who knows? It being the the last one in AIP for Vincent Price, maybe he was contractually required to make another movie. That's a very, very good point. I'd love to find out this information. I mentioned uh, earlier. I want to talk about the gore in this. So. Someone gets their head lopped off, not a drop of blood anywhere. That's sort of interesting. However, this movie does, as it goes on, get a little bit gorier. It does. Uh, And a a more realistic or a better gore than what I had talked about in the oblong box. Even though, you know, the head falling off, there was no blood. There was very little blood uh, at all in uh, the house that dripped blood. Oh, yeah. For a film that had blood in the title. I don't know that there was a drop of blood in it at all, to be honest. I mean, it was very G-rated in that aspect. So, you know, Madhouse at least escalates it, you know, more than we got in, in The House of the Drip Blood, which I think may have been just by necessity for the time period in which it was filmed. Films are becoming more horrific. They may have said, we've got to throw something at them to potentially capture, you know, people's attention. And ultimately, they didn't, unfortunately, because, again... Uh, the movie did not do well at the box office. And speaking of uh, Faye Flay, uh, who was apparently an old co-star of Paul Toombs, they met in the initial uh, New Year's Eve party and then uh, ended up marrying Peter Cushing, and now she's a deranged woman in the basement of Peter Cushing's house. That's an interesting thing to throw in there. I mean, it in on one hand, it doesn't really have a lot to do with the main plot, but it's 
very horrific. Uh, she looks terrible when she rips that wig off and we see her face. She was the victim of a fiery car accident. But my point is, going with the gore and how it escalates through the movie, the, the final scene of her stabbing somebody is quite brutal. I mean, it's yeah. multiple stabbings violently. Again, I think probably a necessity of the times, right? you got to throw in a little bit of a little bit of gore uh, to try to, you know, entice the modern-day audience, which was wanting more more blood, more sex, more violence. And we would continue over the next, if you look at the films, as you and I have been watching some films from if just, what, three years after this, in 1977, how vastly oh, different. Yeah. I mean, we, we've recently watched uh, Eaten Alive, <laughs> which came coming, you know, basically three years after Madhouse, and the difference in styles and the difference in, in what we see. Madhouse is a film of which, you know, you can watch on a Saturday afternoon, and it may not be the best film you can see, but it's certainly not going to be the worst, and you'll have you'll have a 90 minutes of fun watching it. Eaten Alive, you need a hazmat suit to, to cleanse yourself of what you just feel like after you watch that film. So I give me Madhouse any day over something like Eaten Alive. Unfortunately, that's where the genre was kind of heading yeah. just a few years down the road. Uh, and, and Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and the likes would become quaint. Their, their glory day was coming to an end, and we were getting a new era of which we would not see the likes of Price or Cushing or Lee again, unfortunately. Yeah. It's a very entertaining movie. I mean, the last 20 to 30 minutes is really one scene. It's the chase through the studio and all of that. It's an exciting movie. It's It That's doesn't drag. Yeah. It's not boring. But, yeah, well, everything Richard said. I think, yeah, definitely recommend it. Uh, it is... Uh, readily available now on Blu-ray um, so I think that there is a, a definitive copyright held on it again so uh, well worth tracking down the Blu-ray I think to uh, to, to enhance the copy I had was a bargain basement DVD copy which was okay but uh, some things I've read about the Blu-ray releases that although not perfect uh, certainly is enhanced over the DVD releases of, of the like of which I had all right. Well, let's uh, take one more break. We'll come back and do birthdays and home video releases real quick. Nothing else to say about Madhouse. Uh, of these three movies, what which was your favorite? Ooh. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I kind of like the Oblong Box, I guess, of the three, even though, again, it had some flaws. But I also like The House of the Drip Blood and, and Madhouse. That's tough. Um, I equate them about the same. I don't know. I don't know if I would I really... like Yeah, I think that's true. I think they're all... They have. They all three have their pros, and they all have their cons. There's flaws of all three films. All three films could have been better. I think again with the fact that we're dealing with these iconic horror actors being present in all three films elevates them. I think if you'd have taken these films and perhaps put other actors, lesser actors in the in the films, uh, we probably wouldn't be talking about the three troops. So uh, yeah, I think they're all in the definitely same. worth seeing. They're not a dud among them. Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely so. not. All right, we'll be right back. To dream the impossible dream To fight the unbeatable foe with a 
Horse Club podcast. We'll go through our uh, department or segment of uh, birthdays and releases now. Uh, let's start with birthdays since the episode was centered around the birthdays of three horror icons. I mentioned that uh, Hillary Heath was uh, May 6th, which is today the day we're recording. Other big birthdays in May, and this is not all of them, just some highlights. Val Luton was born on the 7th in 1904, uh, famous producer, lots of style and atmosphere and mood. Max Steiner uh, on May 10th, 1888, composer, bigger and more critically noteworthy movies probably, but for me, King Kong composing that score. Uh, On the 12th in 1867, Lionel Barrymore, Raymond Burr, 21st in 1917. Had to throw him in there simply for Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And then uh, Denholm Elliott, who was in uh, House of the Drip Blood that we just talked about, was born May 31st in 1922. Got to give a shout-out to Lionel Barrymore, who, of course, his most famous screen role was Old Man Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, but does an absolutely amazing rendition of Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, he played Scrooge for countless years on radio, uh, tracked down the 1939 uh, Campbell Playhouse edition of A Christmas Carol, with him and uh, Orson Welles, by far the best radio adaptation of, of Scrooge. I've been listening to it every year since 1989. Highly recommend it. Find it on YouTube or archive.org, absolutely free. Great. Some uh, pretty big movies came out in May over the years. Uh, Horror of Dracula. Horror of Dracula. Did you know the Horror of Dracula came out? Uh, the Horror, Horror of Dracula. Horror of Dracula on May 8th and 58th, and that, of course, was in the States because it originally was called Dracula and came out in the U.K., as Dracula on a different date. Mothra, May 10th, 1962. Uh, the Conqueror Worm. A.K.A. Uh, Witchfinder General. Yes, came out on May 15th, 1968. Cash on Demand, uh, May 16th, 1962. Not really horror, but a great Peter Cushing oh, performance. Film. Yeah, very, very good. If you I haven't uh, seen that, search that out. Probably my favorite Vincent Price movie, Abominable Dr. Fibes, May 18th, 1971. Deadly Mantis, May 26, 1957, and It Came From Outer Space, May 27, 1953. Excellent films. Yes. I do want to mention that every Thursday night in May on Turner Classic Movies, they're having feature features. So a lot of movies that uh, we talk about, we'll talk about here, and they talk about on Monster Kid Radio are showing throughout the month of May on Thursday nights. So check that out. As far as releases go, we don't have too many. We went pretty far uh, even into June with the last episode. I don't think we mentioned, though, one May release that's coming out from Severin, and that is Blackenstein <laughs> from 1973. I'm tempted to, to get that. I'd sort of like to have the, you know, Black trilogy of Blackula, Blackenstein, and 
and whatever. I, I've never seen it. Have you? I have not seen Blackenstein. No, mm-hmm. I, I love the uh, the uh, the Blackula film. Yeah, Blackula's great. So yeah. I I may pick that up. That's uh, gonna be good. Uh, in July, Scream Factory is putting out The Man from Planet X in ni- that came out uh, in 1951. Uh, nice ba- creepy film. It's got some at- nice atmosphere and a creepy looking alien. Oh, yeah? Now, have you ever seen Bat People from 1974? <laughs> never heard of Bat People. I, it might have been a TV movie. I remember seeing pictures of the Bat People and it's really cool makeup, or at least young Jeff growing up thought it was really cool. So I, I was thinking about you know, checking that out. Yeah. yeah. I don't know these next two. They're coming out on a double feature, The Night of the Sorcerers and The Laurelay's Grasp from I, 1974. I have The Laurelay's Grasp. Mm. Uh, I believe, oh, Rod covered that over at, not the Nashy cast, but uh, I'm drawing a total blank, but his other podcasts that he does, which are non-Paul Nashy films. And I, uh, I remember I was aware of the film, and he did a great job at that uh uh, podcast and so it's it's uh, it's a film I have yet to see but I definitely want to see it. Mm. And then in August, uh, one release they've announced so far is The Manster from nineteen fifty nine. I've never heard of Brink as a uh, home video company. They're releasing Don't Look in the Basement from nineteen seventy three, and then uh, also Agfa American Genre Film Archive. They're releasing The Zodiac Killer. It's from seventy one. I've never seen it. It's on TCM all the time. Yeah. So, um, uh, anyway, yeah, it's coming out if you're a collector and interested in any of those movies. Some deep dives, definitely. Any closing words? Uh, I want to give a special shout-out to uh, to our friend, uh, Mr. Derek Cook, over there at uh, Monster Kid Radio. He recently lost his brother, and uh, I know he's been having a tough time of it, uh, and quite frankly... Uh, it's because of legends like Derek that uh, we're here doing Classic Horrors Club. So, uh, Derek, we're thinking of you. Uh, take care, and uh, we will be seeing you soon. Uh, little Bird has told me. We've got a little thing called the Monster Bash coming up that we will talk about more next month and the next two months, actually. We'll give a little hype up for our next month's show and then uh, our July show. We hope to have some goodies, maybe, from the Bash, and, and we'll leave it at that, a little bit of a teaser. So... And what are we going to be doing next month? Yeah, well, let's tease him forever or hold him for a little bit longer. I want to say a couple things real quick that we have coming up. So, speaking of Derek, I recorded an episode of Monster Kid Radio on the Invisible Man Returns. It was lost in a horrific uh, hard drive crash, but it was resurrected from the dead, and that will finally be airing this week on Monster Kid Radio Yay. on uh, Wednesday. So I'm excited slash terrified one for that us, one of us one of us uh, and then Rich and I will be participating in a fellow Phantom Podcast Network podcast Nightmare Junkhead they've been doing March Madness with the horror movies from four decades 77, 87, 97, 07 um, now that we're well into May March Madness is continuing strong <laughs> and we'll be talking about a final four of 1977 movies so uh, watch for that on the Phantom Podcast Network. Now, next time, we are talking about, and I'm very excited, two movies Richard has not seen. One of them is one of my absolute favorites. Um, the other I haven't seen in a long, long time because neither one, I don't believe, has had an official video release since the VHS days. But they're coming out on Screen Factory, Blu-ray editions, Willard and Ben. I'm excited. I've been aware of both of these films for a very long time and, and just... Never. It was they were on like the wish list, which uh, if uh, 
if you're like me, your wish list has 10 million movies on it. So uh, I've been able to whittle that down a little bit over the years, but I hadn't got around to those. And we discussed that several months ago uh, on upcoming titles, and uh, that is what we are going to be covering next month, uh, which I'm excited for. It's always fun to see some new horror films, and uh, especially uh, films that are well-known and classic. Uh, so it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too. So until then, thank you for joining us. I will adjourn the meeting, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Goodbye so soon. And isn't this a crime? We know by now the time knows how to fly. <laughs> so here's goodbye so soon. You'll find your separate way. With time so short, I'll say so long and go. So soon, goodbye. You followed me, I followed you. We were like each other's shadows for a while. Now, as you see, this game is through. So, although it hurts, I'll try to smile as I say goodbye. So soon, and isn't this a crime? By now, the time knows how to fly. So here's goodbye, so soon you'll find your separate way. With time so short, I'll say so long and go. So soon, goodbye.